welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And this week we are returning to our old friend, Harley Quinn, and our even older friend, Mr. Satterthwaite, with a mysterious Mr. Quinn short story, The Soul of the Croupier. Intriguing sounding. Yeah. Catherine Brobeck, tell us a little bit about the publication history. Um, Well, it was first published in January 1927 in the Storyteller magazine. That's in the UK. Interestingly, it was published first in the U.S. in November of 1926 in something called Flynn's Weekly. And then, of course, it's part of the Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection in April 1930. Interesting. I mean, I always think the really interesting thing about these stories is the relatively short turnaround time from the time they were published in the magazines to the time they were published in a collection. Yeah, we have those in the Parker Pine stories as well, I feel like. And yes. we also have a lot of back and forth in terms of where they were published first in the mm-hmm. U.S. or the U.K. And they're they're always very close to each other, it seems, and just heavily serialized well, and I on believe, both sides of the pond. Right, and I believe that, like the Parker Pines, were published in groupings. Mm-hmm. I think the storyteller published at least consecutively a number of these Mr. Quinn stories. So there's sort of something similar happening there. When it was published in Storyteller, I think it had a prefix to the title, The Magic of Mr. Quinn Number 2, The Soul of the Croupier. So I guess it was the second within that specific serialization, even though it is the fifth chapter within the Mr. Quinn collection. So in any case, let's talk about our victim here, which is going to be really quick because there really isn't one. And that is because there's not really a crime here, per se. We could say that there is a jeweler in Paris prior to the First World War who has some not great things happen to him. And we could say that the quote-unquote suspect is the jeweler's ex-wife who leaves him in a rather malicious way. But as you can probably tell, this is not a puzzle mystery. So our usual breakdown of the story breaks down a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, it does. So uh, we will just forge ahead as we do and describe to you what happens in yet another spooky, spiritually turbulent Mr. Quinn story of Dame Agatha Christie's. Catherine, tell us about the world as it appears to be. So again, as is not really surprising, there's not exactly a mystery here. And in fact, I would say that it's far less of a mystery than in most of our previous Mr. Quinn episodes. Um, You know, we have actually been able, like Sign in the Sky, I think, is the last one that we did. We were able to cobble together a a mystery out of of what was there. (laughs) Yeah, there's a mystery there. There really is not one here. So basically we have Mr. Satterthwaite and he's spending his winter season in Monte Carlo. And as we've discussed on previous Mr. Quinn um, podcasts and is discussed again here in the text, our good friend Mr. Satterthwaite has a bit of a circuit every year. And it involves Monaco, Deville, Le Turquet, occasional returns to London, you know, because he has to go to Ascot and he has to go to the Eaton Harrow match. 
you know, regattas, uh, et cetera, regattas and racing. Like those are, those are obviously. You can't miss Ascot. I mean, come on. No, of course not. And then he uh, spends the hunting season also presumably in the UK, although we know from previous stories it means he goes to Scotland. So this is basically his circuit that he does every year. He was far more punctual than any swallow. That's what Christy says. (laughs) In Monte Carlo this year, though, this season, he's really a bit disappointed with the current crop of um, expats. Yeah, unfortunately for Mr. Satterthwaite, most of his old crowd got old, and they're gone. Either dead, I presume, or just too old to travel and do the circuit like Mr. Satterthwaite is doing. And he himself is so old that he can't really draw in any of the sparkling younger women as perhaps he could have done in years past. And on top of that, there are just a lot of young Midwestern Americans who suddenly seem to be there. And ugh, Um, Nothing worse than a Midwestern American on the Riviera. Am I right? I mean, speaking as a Midwestern American, um, (laughs) I, yeah, I mean, I suppose that sounds accurate. (laughs) So one such young American is Frank. Kidding, kidding my Midwestern. uh, (laughs) Your Midwestern brethren. Yeah. (laughs) And sistren. So one such young American is Franklin Rouge. Rudge. I'm going to say Rouge because I think that's kinder to his name. And he has become rather enamored with an old standby of the Monte Carlo scene, Countess Zarnova. That's Zarnova with a C and then a Z, just in case yeah, you were wondering. Yeah, in case you were wondering if this was a crossword puzzle and you had to put the uh, T and the S there instead. The Countess has told young Franklin that she's 35. And I'd actually like to read out that passage because it did make me laugh. It's it's one of the, I think, the most enjoyable passages within the story. Because <laughs> Franklin Rouge is sitting down with Mr. Satterthwaite and just in this innocent, naive way, just bubbling about how lovely and wonderful the Countess is. Do you know how old she is? She told me. Rather sporting of her. I should have guessed her to be 29, but she told me of her own accord that she was 35. She doesn't look it, though, does she? And then Christy writes, Mr. Satterthwaite, whose private estimate of the lady's age was between 45 and 49, merely raised his eyebrows. And I kind of, for some reason, I just thought, I don't normally think in emojis, but I imagined that he was like the little side-eye emoji. <laughs> right. At that moment, just sort of being like, Sure, you can think that, young man. Like, wait, have you only been meeting her in very low light? (laughs) Both there and there. I mean, I think they're outside at this moment. Well, no, he actually. She has a Paris. She has a parasol that's of a very flattering color. Well, and she also has plastered her face with makeup, which Satterthwaite notes. He's admiring in a sort of condescending way of how well she makes herself up. So she has certainly taken in our our young Franklin Rouge. Yeah, and and also she's normally seen. He's been an oddity because she's normally seen in the company of um, aristocratic older men. So this is this is a first. Right, that she is seeking out a young, almost a boy, who doesn't have any money or experience or really much of anything obvious to recommend him. Other than the fact that, I mean, he is an American and he has come over to Monaco to see the see the sights, spend some money in the casino, etc., right? So, I mean, you know, presumably he's not exactly 
impoverished. Sure. He's just a, a much less obvious conquest than the, and, and we really should probably call it out, but there is some unfortunate stuck in its time anti-Semitism going on in the story because her friends in recent years are described as being, quote, of Hebraic extraction, sallow men with hooked noses wearing rather flamboyant jewelry. Right. And actually it is for the last year or two that she's been seen with very young men, almost boys. So this is right. this is kind of the latest phase. Um, perhaps he's not exactly the first one, but but this is this is a recent development within well, the right. We you know, we get very quickly the sense that she went from older aristocrats to older, you know, Jewish stereotypes. To older rich men. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what she's getting at there. She's in her tiresome, prejudiced way that she was dating men who were rich. Mm-hmm. Right. But not rich as in aristocratic rich. No, rich exactly. as in well, I mean, mer- merchant class. The point is that her standards seem to be sinking here. We've referenced Lily Bart before, House of Mirth, but this is this is a Lily Bart character. Her options are dwindling, and she started out with high hopes of perhaps an aristocratic marriage, you know, or she, you know, has been married before, but like just some sort of a pairing that's going to be of her benefit. Well, and it's also slightly unclear, even from the beginning, whether or not Mr. Satterthwaite thinks she's actually the Countess Zarnova. Right, right. Like what, whether, like how truly aristocratic she, she is, like, is that a real title? Is that, not that she's impersonating a real, another real person, but just that her aristocratic lineage may not be But But she, but she gets away with it because she's lovely and has aristocratic bearing. Right. Right. And she's not mean to anyone. Like, she's not spiteful. She's she's not mean to Mr. Satterthwaite, even though she completely knows. She knows that Mr. Satterthwaite knows what she's doing here. And it's unspoken, but in a way, it's really sad because perhaps she's attaching herself to younger men, quote, almost boys, because she just wants a companion. Like, she, she just wants someone who's going to be nice to her and be pleasant. Her standards are slipping because she's getting less and less Machiavellian about the whole thing. Well, we can think that, except for where the story is going. I actually do think that's where the story is going, but we can talk about that when we get to the end. Tell us a little bit more about sure. Franklin, our good, our good Midwestern friend. Absolutely. So Franklin has come to Monte Carlo with an American friend, a lady, Elizabeth Martin, who is rather plain and also very determined to get her money's worth out of this European grand tour. She is going to ferret out all the culture that she can find and appreciate it. Gosh darn it. And while she might not actually say gosh darn it within these pages, she comes very very close. Very very close. This is another cringeworthy uh, example of Christie's idiomatic laden American dialogue. It kind of drove me crazy. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a little step away from like, boy, howdy. Like I'm in Monaco. So I got to see those sites and then Oklahoma. <laughs> right. Or like you could imagine like Francis McDormand as her character in Fargo. Because he, the crime I'm investigating, the perpetrators were driving a car with dealer plates and they called someone who works here. So it'd be quite a coincidence if they weren't, you know, connected. Yeah, coming and like just having this outlandish accent that's totally out of place. I mean, that's that's what Christie is trying to get across here. She says that countess of his doesn't cut any ice with me. I'm right down worried about Franklin and he won't hear a thing. He gets madder than a hornet if anyone tries to say a word to him. 
That countess would look a mighty queer <laughs> bird in Sargon Springs, which is her hometown. It's like, oh, okay, Agatha. I anyway, know. so yeah, so Elizabeth Martin very obviously has a crush on Franklin, and she is resentful right, of the countess, as as I just gave a few examples in her via dialogue. <laughs> so yeah, she's very resentful of the countess regaling Franklin with tales of, for example, her famous strand of pearls given to her by the king mm-hmm. of Bosnia. Right. And it's apparently like a very elaborate string of pearls that everybody's heard this story and she wears them all the time. It will become important. So we're not just actually talking <laughs> about that just because. This is like, my, that's kind of all um, we have to hold on to in this story. <laughs> I know, the string of pearls. All she has to hold on to, ironically mm. also, but Dear. we'll get there. So later, two things happen. One, Mr. Satterthwaite runs into, guess who? <gasps> Could it be Harley Quinn? It might be Harley Quinn in the oh casino. Oh, my God. In the oh casino in Monte Carlo. Ugh. Yeah, so he, instead of, um, I don't know, having a more interesting conversation with the enigmatic Mr. Quinn, he instead just gossips to the man about these young Americans and the Countess. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Satterthwaite has uh, limited conversational skills in a lot of ways. Well, he's just a bit of a gossip. Busybody? Yeah, yeah. He's just an old, he's an old busybody. I do want to point out that Mr. Satterthwaite is surprised to see Mr. Quinn. And Mr. Quinn says, it should not surprise you. It is carnival time. I am often here in carnival time. <laughs> because I guess being Harley Quinn, i.e. Harlequin, he would fit in. At Carnival, where there are a lot of jesters in motley colored costumes. Oh, no. (laughs) Stop it. Stop it. No. Anyway. I have one more slight tangent because as I have to harp now um, in every of these Harley Quinn stories, we have the reference to Harley Quinn's appearance, which we get our first little inkling of there. And then on that very same page, the other issue that always has to be checked here in the Harley Quinn stories is some sort of reference to Mr. Satterthwaite being an observer and not really taking part in life. And um, Harley Quinn says, you have changed since I first knew you. In what way? Asked Mr. Satterthwaite. You were content then to look on at the drama that life offered. Now you want to take part, to act. And then things go on from there. So um, great. We are in a fully functioning Harley Quinn story here. Yeah. So we have that going Mm -hmm. for us. And then we also find out that the famous Parisian actress Mirabelle (laughs) is coming to town. She goes by one name. She's like, are there people in France (laughs) named Anne? No, she's like she's like a share of the 1927 Parisian stage. A Lady Gaga, if you will. Well, I think she might even dress like Lady Gaga. So, um, you know, she is described and I, I want to be clear about this. Her skin is described as a light mauve and she has orange lips. It's actually pretty, pretty great when she first appears and, and everyone is all agog. Mirabelle was a tall, thin creature with a wonderful head of dyed fair hair. Her complexion was a pale mauve with orange lips. She was amazingly chic. She was dressed in something that looked like a glorified bird of paradise, and she wore chains of jewels hanging down her bare back. A heavy bracelet set with immense diamonds clasped her left ankle. She created a sensation when she appeared in the casino. She sounds crazy. I mean, it like it sounds like the equivalent of Gaga wearing a meat yeah. dress. Yeah. Or remember there that was like a fashion motif a couple of years ago wearing necklaces 
that hung down your back so that it was all the, well, all the decoration was in the back and there was it was barely even in the front. Well, I think that that's obviously a historic thing. There are plenty of portraits and stuff that have like low back right in the twenties, especially that, right. Like that was a that was a yeah, thing. Yeah, right. it just it made a comeback a couple of years ago. I remember in in like, just a really obvious way. There was a moment when like around the sort of award season where it just felt like everyone was wearing backless dresses with this really elaborate jewelry hanging down it. Like Anne Hathaway and Jennifer Lawrence both did when they won Oscars the same year, for example. I just can't get over her bleached blonde hair, pale mauve face and orange lips. Yeah, because to be clear, mauve is red-purple. Yeah, like a purple, like a purple tinge. Yeah, it's color. like a purpley, pinky, reddy. Not a face color usually. Well, not usually, and especially not usually with bleached blonde hair and orange lips. I mean, it sounds a little bit like she's wearing like Oompa Loompa makeup in like reverse or something, you know? <laughs> but what I do love is so then, Mister Quinn, a, a bit cattily, murmurs in Mister Satterthwaite's ear, "Your friend, the Countess, will have a difficulty in outdoing this." Statler and Waldorf over there. And when the Countess appears, she too creates quite a sensation because here's what Christie writes. She was dressed in white, a mere straight slip of Marocan, such as a debutante might have worn, and her gleaming white neck and arms were unadored. She wore not a single jewel. It is clever that, said Mr. Satterthwaite with instant approval. She disdains rivalry and turns the tables on her adversary. I haven't seen high drama like this since the last episode of RuPaul's Drag Race that I uh, tuned into, you know? Yeah, like I think that Marl Ken is like a crap kind of silk Mm -hmm. material. So like even kind of just see her kind of like looking glamorously, simply like vir- like virginal, yeah. right? Or like a Greek god, or like a Greek. It's like simple yet luminous like kind of material, right? Like it's a yes. luminous fabric. Yeah. I believe it was actually referenced in in Jane in Search of a Job, also oddly, right? Yeah, it is. I, I don't think it's I don't think it's luminous. So I think it's I think it's usually silk, which like it would not. Well, you know have how silk has effect, a luster actually. to it, though. In the light, like silk kind of has a, a bit of a like a warmth to it, even though it's simple. I might be completely wrong about what I think Marocan is. I think that I think it's like a crepe, which would not actually mm, have that true. because it would be flat. Right. Like there's a billion different ways to cut silk. Right. And to make it have different yeah, kind my, of my, light effects. No, my theory of what she's wearing is kind of like, you know, Grecian. Mm-hmm, like. mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So despite her simplistic and sensibly elegant outfit, the Countess starts behaving rather recklessly, and she risks a huge amount of money at the roulette table. And uh, our friend Mr. Satterthwaite is also wagering on roulette, and there's been a running joke that nobody ever wins at any of these casino games, except... Mr. Satterthwaite finally wins on roulette, and he is, man, is he delighted. We get, like, his, like, inner joy... Elation, yeah. His elation, except uh, as he goes to scoop up the pile of winnings, the croupier instead pushes a stack of money at the countess, insisting that she was the real winner. And Satterthwaite's indignant and, like, kind of furious, but he goes, you know, he's too civilized to throw a fit, so he goes and pouts to Mr. Quinn. He's too chivalrous, really. I mean, you get the sense that if that were another man— who mistakenly took his winnings, he would have thrown a fit and gotten the man's face. Right. But he's not going to naysay a lady. 
Right. And um, Mr. Quinn kind of, like, it seems as a distraction, suggests a game. And it's an odd game. And it is not a casino game. What is the, what is the game, Gumper? So the game is that Mr. Quinn, Satterthwaite, and young Franklin Rouge will each invite the first person they see as they step outside this casino to a dinner party at a bohemian restaurant called Le Caveau. They will all meet there a bit later. And who does Mr. Satterthwaite run into, Catherine? Elizabeth Martin. So conveniently, so he takes her. Even though he doesn't really like her, by the way, that's that's also noted well, earlier in the story. You know, <laughs> it's not that he doesn't like her; it's that Christy, in a weird, like, um, omniscient narrator aside, kind of says it's not that he would think that she was particularly cultured or clear about the arts. He just assumed that she was particularly young. Right, and in that, one of Mister Satterthwaite's defining characteristics is that he's old. I think that's her way of saying they just don't have anything in common. Yeah, he's an old snob. Yeah, and she's a she's an ingenue. You know, she is she's she's young and she just hasn't seen much of the world in terms of geography or experience, <laughs> and right. never shall the twain meet. <laughs> Although there's also a really funny line earlier where it's like maybe he grudgingly respects her because he doesn't note that some young women go to Paris and they leave looking like the Queen of Sheba. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, instead, Elizabeth Martin wears like sensibly tailored suits. Yeah, she's very sensible. Yeah, I mean, so Saturday three doesn't really like that because he likes some glamour, but he also can kind of begrudgingly appreciate that she didn't leave looking like Mirabelle. I guess. Right. Who do Rouge and Quinn take, Catherine? Our friend Franklin shows up with who else? The Countess, of course. And Mister Quinn shows up with. Our suspicious gentleman of the casino, Pierre Vaucher, the titular croupier. And at dinner, both uh, Franklin and Vaucher get really pretty drunk. Franklin tells a very tedious story about a man essentially running from failure up into success. We don't get, thankfully, (laughs) many of the details about it. But then Boucher counters that he could tell a much darker story. It's kind of like uh, Rouge as the American tells one of those Horatio Alger, pull yourself up by your bootstraps yeah. mm-hmm. stories. For and sure. everyone's like, mm, that's dumb. And this it's so European that Boucher is like, oh, I will tell you a much darker story about right. the way that life really is it's that european fatalism <laughs> versus the american you know the sunny american optimism right and we know which one wins out uh in this story it would be the fatalism because we're then drawn into this story within a story and in a weird way we could say that that is the world as it actually is because it shows us what has been going on underneath the surface on this evening in the casino at monte carlo so vaucher's story is about this there's a young man And he is a jeweler in Paris before the Great War. And he's a bit lonely, and he understands what it's like to be down on one's luck. So, when a lovely young woman wanders into his shop, he understands that her luck has run out, and that she is nearly starving to death. And he, in the sort of generosity of his heart, falls in love with this poor woman, and eventually marries her. But she doesn't really love him, and she fights with him. And after some time, she disappears. So our jeweler, our Parisian jeweler, turns to his only friend, Absinthe. Of course. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, two years later, he's out of his shop and he comes back in 
and she is sitting there dripping in finery and there's a little bit of a standoff as though she's expecting him to I guess make an argument for her to come back as if she wants him to take her back but in fact guess what she doesn't she's shown up to get him to beg for her to get him to beg her to come back only so that she can cruelly cruelly reject him because that's what she really wants except he doesn't fall for it um he basically sends her away and yet she still gets what she came for she still destroys him because he falls further and further into the warm embrace of absinthe he ends up losing his business he ends up on the streets and is destitute but he's really just down and out until the war and then the war essentially makes him a man again other than being you know mustard gassed so you know that that part's not super but he moves to the riviera for the air basically to recover and oh what does this jeweler end up doing kemper i think he might become a croupier just maybe And one night, this croupier sees the woman, the one from long ago who he married and who then cruelly deserted him. And he realizes what others don't. She's betting money so wildly because she's finally run out of it. That famous string of pearls that she wears all the time, they're no longer real. She's had to sell them off one by one by one. And of course, the croupier could tell because he was once a high-end jeweler. So what does this croupier do, this prideful croupier who refused to beg for his love to come back to him, but went through such a horrible period nonetheless and has now come out the other side of it? What does he do when he sees this woman in this vulnerable position? Does he lash out at her? Does he just utterly destroy her? No. He rigs the game because now... The tables have truly turned, and he pities her. The tables literally because it's roulette. He he rigged the game, and that's why he scooped up Mr. Satterthwaite's earnings and put and gave them to her. And she took them because she presumably didn't realize that the croupier was her long-lost husband, <laughs> the jeweler right. from long ago. Not that a croupier is technically the help, but perhaps she underestimated the help by not examining his face closely enough when she was playing the game, and she she took well, that money. Not, and it's also not her interest, right? Her entire interest in going to the casino every year is to find another mark, basically. Right. I mean, that right. seems unkind, but that's essentially what she's doing. She's finding a, a new Patron, let's call it that. A new patron she's finding every year. And obviously it's not going to be a dealer at the casino. Right. So she's not she's she's not even looking at him. And again, given the fact that the quality of her mark has <laughs> by mercenary standards descended over the years, right? That like now right. she's willing mm-hmm. to attach herself to these young men from Midwestern states in the U.S. who might not even be able to make all that much. She is just getting increasingly desperate and the croupier is able to, you know, have 
absolute knowledge of that because he sees that the necklace is fake and he just knows her because obviously he used to be married to her. So she was sort of the unwitting recipient of his pity, but by telling the story, she now realizes what happened and that she uh, essentially took charity from the man who she had betrayed so long ago. And um, what does she do, Catherine? when she realizes this. She goes to light Vaucher's cigarette and the paper that she uses to light the cigarette, after she storms out, it becomes clear that it's a 50,000 franc note. Which was the winnings that Vaucher had given to her. And they only find that out after she's left, right? Mm -hmm. So she storms away and then they're like... Oh, mon dieu. What she used to light the cigarette was the money that he had given her because she, too, is just as prideful and refuses to take his charity. In the end, Franklin and Elizabeth end up together because they're basically like, uh, you Europeans are crazy. We're just going to go and be mundane and sensible back in the States, back in, uh, I don't know, Ohio or somewhere. Right. You could say that that was Harley Quinn's objective. Well, it clearly is. That clearly is his objective. Quinn's presence in the story is predicated on Mr. Satterthwaite being annoyed that Franklin and Elizabeth aren't going to end up together. So what normally when Mr. Quinn steps in, he ends up being the catalyst to get the solution that Mr. Satterthwaite wants. Right. And I mean, the thing that is connecting this story to previous Mr. Quinn mysteries and to other Christie mysteries, not all the time, but often, is that there is a love connection that is made possible by the solving of the quote unquote mystery. Um, it's just that the mystery here is not all that robust. It's well, more not just really a mystery. It's a story yeah. being told. You know, it's, it's just a story. It's, being, well, it's it's a misperception, right? It's not a mystery. It's a misperception on someone's part, and that is corrected to the benefit of these young American lovers, and very much to the detriment of Countess Zarnova, who I suppose we're not supposed to pity all that much, since she brought this on herself by treating her former husband like garbage, garbage, the ex-croupier, the jeweler-turned-croupier. So Quinn doesn't really care that he's destroyed her chances. He just wants these young lovers to end up together. And we find that the idea of uniting lovers um, to be the conclusion that a lot of these Mr. Quinn stories come to. I mean, I think it's why they are known as the love detectives. Mr. Satterthwaite and and Mr. Quinn, not heart specialists like Parker Pine, but that is often their aim. It's just that this one didn't really require solving a mystery to get there. No, it didn't require doing much of anything other than, I guess, coincidence. And I suppose in the case of Mr. Quinn, a deliberate choice in having the croupier be the person that he brings to dinner. He also, in, I mean, in a weird way, you could say that he is, I mean, the croupier was trying to do a nice thing for right, this was. woman who did a horrible thing to him, and Mr. Quinn ruins that. So he, he kind of hurts the croupier, too. Right, because he um, ends up running out after the countess, too. Yeah, because he realizes that, oh, she didn't, you know, she didn't take my help, and now she's just going to be, who knows destitute. what's going to happen to her. Just destitute. I mean, again, Lily Bard. Her fate right. is pretty much the fate of Lily Bard. So, I mean, he is still in love with her, he says, because she was too proud to accept pity. Ah, proud. She was always proud as the devil. She's unique, wonderful. And he springs up and darts out. So, you know what? Maybe there is a second pair of lovers who who end up uh, making it, but I wouldn't place a bet on that. 
Oh, gosh. No, I would not either. I also like this is all to get Franklin and Elizabeth together. And this this is how we we see them come together, which is why I just didn't feel particularly invested in this love connection. I feel kind of lonesome, Elizabeth, remarked Franklin Rouge. These foreigners, they beat the band. I don't understand them. What's it all mean, anyhow? He looked across at her. Gee, it's good to look at anything so 100% American as you. His voice took on the plaintive note of a small child. These foreigners are so odd. And then they go off into the night together. I just don't care. They make Curly and Lori look like sophisticates. <laughs> but we do end on a high note in the story because I mentioned my two elements that I so cherish in a Harley Quinn story. Description of Harley Quinn and um, Mr. Satterthwaite complaining about being an observer in life. And we got a taste of description when Carnival was referenced. But I was really feeling a little down that we, we didn't get that kind of full-fledged Harley Quinn description that we see, we had gotten mm-hmm. in all of our other stories. Oh, and were, then, you feeling, were you feeling down about it? I was feeling, I was feeling down. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, and then you read a little further? And then I read a little further, and I got to the very last line of this story. And here it is. Mr. Quinn smiled and a stained glass panel behind him invested him for just a moment in a motley garment of colored light. Now, if that is not a fitting ending for a Harley Quinn story, I don't know what is. Every time that happens in every other Harley Quinn story. (laughs) (laughs) But I love that it was the last, like, I was really worried where I was like, oh no, am I wrong? Does she really not talk about it in every story? And I just felt jubilant. Now, watch the pattern be broken at some point. I'm sure it will, but I just really it just went out on a high note for me. Yeah, I just like was disappointed that he didn't have spookier things to do in this story. Yeah, this was not, not the best, Mr. Quinn. I think that we might be getting to, there were two Mr. Quinns that Christy herself identified as her best. And I believe that it's the next one coming up, The Man from the Sea, and then Harlequin's Lane, which is the last one. So we may have a superlative Harley Quinn on our hands for our next title. I will do a little bit of digging to see if that is actually the case by the time we get to that title. So that is something to look forward to. Something also to look forward to is our next episode in which we will be interviewing award-winning novelist Sophie Hanna, the author of three Poirot continuation novels. We are so excited to discuss so many different things with her. So that is our next episode. And then... Guess who we get back in our next book episode, Kemper? Oh, I'm so excited. We get Tommy and Tuppence, and we get them at a different stage in life. And I have to say, I mean, I hope this doesn't let me down because I'm very curious to check back in with our Beresfords. I can't wait. We're going to get a World War II caper. And in the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. We are on Twitter at All About the Dame. And Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat. And our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. Take a moment, rate and review us. It really helps other people find the podcast. And we so, so appreciate it. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.